This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It's going to be a really tough negotiation. And again, even if McCarthy finds something that pleases his own conference in the House, the Senate Republicans aren't on the same page. So there's a lot of, not to mention the Democrats. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Today, I'm back with my colleague, Elizabeth Hoffman, who's a CSIS fellow and the director of Congressional and Government Affairs here at CSIS. And Elizabeth, the last time we spoke, we were literally on a very long bus ride from Lviv to Kiev. That's right. So it's been about a week and a half since we've returned from that experience. And so I wanted to pick your brain on, on what were the, some of the, the key things that you took away from the trip of what you think that the congressional staffers took away from the trip and overall impressions. I just thought it would be interesting to compare notes. So just to get us started, what was the most impactful meeting that we had for you that you think well, really resonated with you? There were a lot of really impactful meetings. Honestly, every engagement, I think, was super impactful. But one of the things that really kind of stood out to me was when we took, when we went with staff and we took them to Irpin and Bucha yeah. to see Irpin is essentially where the Ukrainians were able to stop the Russians um, yeah. in those first days of the war. And we met with some of the soldiers who led that effort and even to call them soldiers, I'd say there's about 250 militia, yeah. in essence, who defended Irpin. Three of them were professional soldiers. Right. The rest, I mean, two of the guys we talked to, one was a cable guy mm-hmm. and one had been a landscape architect yeah. prior to the Russian invasion. Yeah. So they were not trained. They were not equipped. And they essentially came together to fight for their homes. Yeah. They're using shovels, like literally whatever yes. they could beg, borrow, and steal. Right. They said they didn't really have any weapons. The weapons mm-hmm. they were able to get eventually were taken from Russians. And it was it was pretty incredible. And also one of the, the stunning things is that the Russians cut off all cell communication. Internet was down. Everything was down. They were in this fight for about a month. And during the majority of that time, they had no idea if the president was still alive, mm-hmm. if the Capitol was still standing. Yeah. No idea. And they kept fighting. It was really, really amazing to see that and to see some of the buildings that still haven't been repaired. I know a lot has been repaired at this point, so we didn't see the entirety of the damage. But to see some of the damage and then going to Bucha, too, and seeing the memorial for many of the the people that were killed there by Russian forces and looking, you know, they have a beautiful memorial that has been erected in front of the mass gravesite where the Russians essentially threw bodies after they'd been killed and seeing, you know, the dates of some of these mm-hmm. kids, four-year-olds, three-year-olds, yeah. you know, grandparents. I mean, you can just imagine yourself. You can you imagine that as your family. You imagine that as your neighbor. And mm-hmm. 
just the utter disregard that the Russians had for human for, life. Yeah. 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 It was it was really shocking to mm-hmm. see. One of the takeaways that I had from the trip was how profound a turning point Bucha was for the entire region. You know, Zelensky goes to Bucha, he sees these mass graves, he starts understanding the atrocities. And by the the accounts we got on the ground, Zelensky, prior to seeing Bucha, was considering having some sort of peace negotiation for our territory and, and that sort of, and at Bucha was like, no, no more. We must stand and fight because we are facing genocide. And what was interesting is we also saw that in Moldova, the Moldovans said that they saw Bucha and they saw what the Russians were doing and said, okay, we actually have to revisit our strategic calculation of neutrality because we cannot rely on neutrality to protect us against these war criminals. And for our audience, I don't want to trigger anybody, but some of the stories that we heard of, of what Russian forces did to the Ukrainians are blood curdling. It is horrendous what these people went through. It really is. And I always hesitate, you know, when people say words like genocide or compare yeah. regimes to Hitler and the Nazis, it's always like, oh, do you really, is it? But having been on the ground in Ukraine, talking to the people, seeing what we saw, I think it's absolutely a valid comparison. Yes. I mean, it, it, it meets the the international legal criteria of genocide uh, because they are trying to erase, the Russians are trying to erase the Ukrainian culture. Ukraine as a people, Ukraine as a, as a country, but more than just the technical language, it's heinous and brutal. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, obviously, I'm not Zelensky, but before going to Ukraine, I was of the mindset that, oh, you know, at some point, there's probably going to be a negotiation. Maybe, you know, they're saying that we need all of our territory back. Maybe they'll maybe they'll leave Crimea. But then after having gone there and seen everything, talked to people, I think they're 100 percent resolute in their stance that we need every inch of Ukrainian territory back. Yep. I mean, the argument that we heard time and again was if we let, if we cede Crimea, if mm-hmm. we say we're not taking Crimea back, that's just going to be the launching pad for another attack, yes. you know, next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, whoever comes next after Putin. I don't think they'll settle for anything less than every single inch of Ukrainian territory. And I think that that's right. You know, I think that's right. Yeah, I I think I I walked away with a a similar impression. Maybe Crimea is lost. And I walked away with this understanding that it's really folly to think that Russia would be okay with just having Crimea, that it would be entertained as anything more than a strategic pause. Yeah. And going back to the comparison to Hitler and World War II, where the West kind of ceded the Sudetenland Mm -hmm. and said, "Okay, well, now Hitler will stop. It's just you can't help but draw those comparisons. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's exactly right. And one of the things I was impressed by in one of the meetings we had with the president's representative for Crimea, they outlined a plan for how Zelensky, the current Ukrainian government, would reintegrate Crimea. They understand that there will be challenges, that that Mm -hmm. territory has now been held by Russians for quite some time, that some Russians may stay there, that the people have been cut off from credible information, all of these different things. And they are thinking about that already before they're even close to getting Crimea back. They Mm -hmm. are starting to plan for how do we bring this region back into the fold in Ukraine. And I think that's really important. And I was kind of impressed by the forethought that they are putting into 
you know, not just winning the war, but what do we do after that? That was also, yes, one of my takeaways, too, how Ukrainians are thinking strategically about their position and the post-war settlement and trying to do the things now necessary to ensure that once the war is over, that they are able to as quickly as possible recover and integrate into Western economies and, and European Union and so on and so forth. It's not like let the war be over and then we'll do the, all the investment. No, they're 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 like we need to win the war now. We're focused on that, but that's not to say that we aren't thinking very deeply about the broader reconstruction and post-war settlement issues and 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 reintegration issues and 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 all those sorts of things. Absolutely, and we saw that in our meetings with the different both civil society and government entities that are tackling mm-hmm. corruption. Yes, as well. That was, again, really impressive to see that this country that has struggled with corruption for so long, now in the middle of a war, in the middle of conflict, they're taking it on and they're taking it on seriously. And it's just really impressive to see that, you know, they are thinking about the future and want a better Ukraine. And in a way, the full-scale invasion has been a catalyst for Mm -hmm. some real strides in improving democratic institutions and Ukraine's democracy already, even though there's all these terrible things happening that they could easily say, we're not going to deal with this now. We're going to wait until, like you said, until the conflict is over, that they're taking all of this on now is just Mm -hmm. really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. That we were there as part of a staff delegation, congressional staff delegation. And that that you capably organized and herded all the cats, and it was amazing to to watch you in action. I'd love your sense on where the debate is, in your view, in Congress right now on Ukraine assistance, and and I'd like to also, as part of that question, ask: Do you, do you feel that there's almost like an Afghanistan hangover that's impacting the discussion right now on Ukraine? But what I mean by Afghanistan hangover is how things went so badly there and we spent so much money training and equipping the Afghan forces to have it all melt away. Is that a one of the sources of concern that we're starting to see bubble up in the Ukraine side or not so much? That's a good question. People seem, some people seem to draw this comparison between Afghanistan and Ukraine. I think that's because the the failures of the withdrawal are so fresh on people's minds. But it's such a bad comparison, frankly, to, yep. for lack of a better yeah. way to put it. You know, in Afghanistan, you did not have a functional government when the U.S. invaded. You did not have a robust civil society. And Ukraine is just completely opposite in every single way. You have a functioning yep. government. You have robust civil society mm-hmm. um, that really started during Maidan, during the revolution, when when the Ukrainians went to the square for democracy. And there's no U.S. soldiers there. It's a just it's a different type of investment. So people do draw that comparison sometimes. And I just don't think it holds water. The debate in Congress is tough. I mean, I think the debate right now is in the House. Mm -hmm. The Senate on both sides of the aisle have spoken out relatively clearly that they're going to support Ukraine. So this is going to be a major point of tension between the House and the Senate and really between House and Senate Republicans Mm -hmm. um, going into this month. They do need to pass some sort of 
appropriations bill if the government isn't going to shut down on October 1st. Tied to that is this Ukraine supplemental request. And the Freedom Caucus has spoken out pretty authoritatively that they don't want to see additional assistance for Ukraine. So Speaker McCarthy is in a really tough position because the Freedom Caucus, you know, he made a he made a deal um, for the debt ceiling mm-hmm. to get past that crisis. And he kind of thought he had all his ducks in a row, thought it lined up. And then after the deal passed, the Freedom Caucus kind of turned on it and mm-hmm. said, we didn't like this. They essentially, mm-hmm. quote unquote, held the floor hostage. They wouldn't let Republicans bring any, you know, their own party, bring any legislation to the floor to vote on. They used a variety of procedural procedural me- uh, measures to block votes. And one of the concessions that McCarthy made to kind of lift that that hold on the floor was, you know, cutting appropriations below what was agreed to in the debt ceiling deal. Mm. And at first they said Ukraine doesn't count for that. Like Ukraine won't count against that, you mm. know. And then a couple, a week or so later, I was like, mm, actually, no, Ukraine has to be part of this deal, which is impossible. Um, there's just no way to fund the federal government responsibly and get the Ukraine supplemental, the funding that Ukraine needs across the aisle, so it, across the finish line. So that's going to be really, really challenging. I don't know how it's going to go right now. They are talking about, I think, I think a lot of things are being floated in the press to kind of test test mm-hmm. the waters to see what sticks, what kind of pushback McCarthy gets. Right now, one of the things they're talking about is tying or including in a supplemental appropriations package that would include Ukraine funding, border security, additional resources for border security has been discussed. Also, including aid for the wildfires in Hawaii, the mm-hmm. recent hurricane in Florida. And that might make a package more palatable to some of the members yeah. who oppose Ukraine funding. But I think it's going to be tough. It's going to be a really tough negotiation. And again, even if McCarthy finds something that pleases his own conference in the House, the Senate Republicans aren't on the same page. So there's a lot of, not to mention the Democrats, so there's a lot of different hurdles uh, to overcome before we kind of figure out what how this all falls. And the House isn't back until September 11th. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty compressed timeline to get anything done. Right. It's going to be interesting to watch. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for your insights and your views on on um, the, the trip and, and Congress and, and the stakes that are at play right now. And thank you for taking the, the, the delegation out there to get a sense of what it was like on the ground. Well, thank you for joining us. I think it was really important to have you there. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.